Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Since we last reported on the news from Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, things have not been going Kyiv's way. The US Congress has blocked a 61 billion aid package for Ukraine, and President Volodymyr Zelensky this week visited Washington in an attempt to persuade Republican politicians to change their minds. But will he succeed? Meanwhile, Russia has hardened its bargaining position by demanding that Ukraine withdraws its troops from Russian territory as a prerequisite for any peace talks and announcing that it will conduct voting for the 2024 presidential election in occupied Ukraine, likely in an attempt to legitimize the Russian occupation and Russian President Vladimir Putin's rule. There is at least a bit of happier news for Ukraine uh, with Britain's announcement that it's going to donate scores of amphibious vehicles and raiding craft to help the Ukrainian armed forces expand their positions on the left bank of the Dnipro in the Kherson province. Elsewhere on the battlefield, Russian forces conducted offensive operations in multiple locations, including Kupyansl near Bakhmut, near Advivka, and in western uh, Zaporizhia Oblast. And they actually made some advances in some areas. Yet the cost to Russia may be crippling, with the ISW estimating that its losses along the entire front are more than it can replace with new recruits and some really horrifying casualty figures coming out of Ukraine and the US. We'll discuss the significance of all this, but the really worrying news is that Ukraine might soon be cut off from US military support, Saul. What's the latest? Well, let's put this in context, shall we? So far, the US has donated $75 billion in helping Ukraine to repel the Russian invasion. The bit of that that's arms, and it's a big bit of it, particularly HIMARS and other weapon systems, have already helped the Ukrainians recover large chunks of their territory, but that was in 2022. The results of this year's summer offensive have been, as we all know, pretty disappointing. And many Republican politicians have said they're tired of writing what they describe as blank checks for Ukraine when there are more pressing problems closer to home, including the US's porous southern border with Mexico. This culminated last week with Senate Republicans refusing President Biden's request to vote an extra 61 billion in military and economic aid for Kyiv as part of a joint funding package for both Ukraine and Israel. That, in turn, prompted Biden to warn that American support for Ukraine will run out by the end of the year. 
hence President Zelensky's trip this week to Washington, where he's already met Biden and Republican House leaders. Now, a similar situation is also playing out in the EU, where a threat by Viktor Orban, Hungary's prime minister, to veto a 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine has prompted European leaders to draw up what they describe as a plan B, whereby separate nations join an intergovernmental deal to provide Kyiv with a series of loans and grants to keep its economy afloat for at least a year. Where there's a will, there's a way, a senior EU official said, if we're talking money, you can think of the budget as the EU's own resource, but you also have national contributions. Now, Zelensky said about all of this on Monday, when the free world hesitates, dictators celebrate. It's a good line, isn't it? But will his rhetoric produce the desired result? We'll soon find out. But with the US presidential election less than a year away, the window of opportunity for Ukraine to recover big chunks of its territory might be closing much faster than we had anticipated. So what's your take on all of this, Patrick? Well, there was a um, press conference uh, after the Biden meeting and and Zelensky did make some uh, positive noises saying, you know, he felt that it was... It was all going to be resolved, but it's nonetheless pretty troubling, isn't it? And um, you know, I've, be, I've been reading some reports that say the effect is already being felt on the on the front. One source was quoted as saying that what in the spring was a river of U.S. military supplies has slowed to a trickle and is now only a few drops. Well, that may be a bit of uh, exaggeration, but certainly uh, they're they're pretty worried. And no matter how positive the rhetoric coming from Biden and uh, Zelensky. The reality is that the purse strings are controlled by Congress and the balance of power in Congress is in the hands of these isolationist-minded Republicans, especially in the House of Representatives, where the Speaker also met uh, Zelensky, that's Mike Johnson. And afterwards, he expressed um, a little enthusiasm for Biden's request for the 60 billion in new assistance. Uh, He was quoted as saying, what the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. So as you say, Saul, with the election seasons already effectively underway, this is going to be a big issue in the contest. And uh, with a Republican candidate, who at the moment looks likely to be Donald Trump, I would have thought he's going to be pushing a sort of enough is enough line. And uh, all this, of course, is great news for Russia, isn't it? This is exactly their long game. This is exactly the strategy they've been clinging to for all these months. And they're sort of uh, already kind of uh, moving into a phase where they're they're claiming that, you know, de facto, uh, well, they've already said de de jure, these chunks of occupied Ukraine or of Ukraine that they've occupied uh, are Russia. And to underline that, they're saying that in the upcoming 2024 presidential election, these areas are the annexed areas of Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast will all be voting in that election. And of course, uh, we we don't uh, actually expect that to be a free and fair event. And all the time, of course, they're doing what they can uh, to fan the flames of the debate in the U.S., by saying that the uh, peace in, in the area, peace in Ukraine can only come if the US stops pumping, this is a quote from a foreign ministry spokesman, Maria Zakharova, if the US stops, quotes, pumping up the armed forces of Ukraine with weapons, they're also saying that they seem to have hardened their line on what would be the kind of starting point for negotiations, and that would be Ukraine withdrawing its troops 
from the areas they claim are Russia, what what Russia claims are part of its territories. Now, of course, that's not going to happen, but it does emphasize that Moscow seems to be hardening its line. Uh, what do you think all that means, Saul? Well, the first thing to say is that this messaging from Russia is chiefly, of course, for public consumption prior to the presidential election in March 2024. I mean, it's also, uh, of course, as you say, Patrick, uh, an attempt to sway Americans too, and possibly other people in the West. Moscow is trying to give the impression that it's winning the war, that it will, that it will eventually occupy all of the four Ukrainian oblasts, that it is unilaterally annexed. And it's worth emphasizing, of course, to listeners that at the moment it only has partial control of those four provinces and that it can eventually withdraw from the conflict with something that it would describe as a victory. All of that discounts, of course, the Ukrainians and the fact that the disappointment of the summer offensive notwithstanding, they are still making inroads across the Dnipro and against Russia's naval might in the Black Sea. This week, as we said at the top, Britain has agreed to supply Ukraine with 20 Viking amphibious vehicles and 23 raiding craft as part of a deal to strengthen its navy and its hold on bridgeheads on the east or left bank of the Dnipro. The deal, part of a naval co coalition that includes Norway, interestingly enough, also involves the donation of two minesweepers. Together, said President Zelensky, we will strengthen the Ukrainian Navy, safeguard maritime transportation routes and secure freedom on navigation. Now, on the subject of the Dnipro bridgehead, a recent report in The Times suggests that Ukrainian Marines there are trying to push the Russians back to the Oleshki Sands, a large open desert-like area, and cut off the two roads they use as supply lines along the riverbank. Now, uh, they need to drive the Russians back 25 miles out of artillery range before they can put up pontoon bridges capable of bringing heavy machinery and tanks over the river. Vitaly Panikov, the leader of the Ukrainian Special Forces Unit operating there, said, there are only two roads leading to Crimea from the left bank. As soon as our guys take the Melitopol road, that's it. There will be zero Russian fire control from there. They will just have to run for their lives. Panikov added that Ukrainian Marine Vanguard is already close to one of those roads, the Olashki Kakovka Highway, and that the Russians are taking heavy casualties. He anticipates two or three big Ukrainian attacks soon and large gains. So let's hope he's right in all of that. I think some good news will be very welcome. Now, as you said at the top, so Russia's been attacking in multiple directions and it's made a few marginal advances. But, you know, this comes at a very, very high price. I think there's no disputing that. According to the Ukrainian Ground Forces spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Volodymyr Fityu, Russian forces lost almost 11,000 men. That's killed and badly wounded in the Kupiansk, Lyman and Bakhmut directions in the month of November. Now, that's actually less a kind of hot sector of the front than in the Avdiivka direction. So, that means that um, you know you can add on a, a whole chunk more casualties there. There's also claims from the Ukrainians that they killed over 1,200 Russians and wounded some 2,200. That's uh, on the incursion onto the um, east bank of the Dnipro. Uh, that was between the 17th of October and the 17th of November. So you arrive at some pretty grim overall figures. And these have actually kind of um, backed up by what the Americans are saying. The U.S. National Security Council assessed that Russian forces have suffered more than 13,000 casualties and lost 220 combat vehicles uh, since uh, they began these, uh, this kind of more aggressive forward stance in, uh, in October. And um, so, yeah, all in all, some pretty grim 
overall figures. And the question, of course, is whether they can replace the losses. Now, according to the ISW, the answer is they probably can't. Recent reports said high Russian casualties will likely prevent Russian forces from fully replenishing and reconstituting existing units in Ukraine and forming new operational and strategic reserves. Russia does appear to be able to continue absorbing such losses and making them good with new recruits. However, as long as President Vladimir is willing and able to absorb the domestic consequences, which would appear uh, to be the case. Now, why are they doing all this? Well, it seems that, you know, this will carry on this uh, willingness to throw men into the meat grinder while uh, there's a slim chance that they can actually make some gains on the battlefield that can be presented prior to the presidential elections as some kind of victory. But having said all that, uh, it's still not looking good for Ukraine, is it, overall? No, it isn't. Um, I mean, it's interesting that the a recent US intelligence briefing has actually suggested that he's got no operational intention. In other words, that these many attacks that are going on right across the Eastern Front have no kind of obvious operational or strategic objective in mind. What they're actually trying to do is weaken Western support for Ukraine by saying, look, you know, now it's the Russians on the attack after all the weapons you've given them after, you know, the much vaunted summer offensive. It's us Russians who are attacking. Therefore, you know, you need to bring this war to a close. You need to stop arming Ukraine. I'm not entirely sure the logic of all of that works, Patrick. And and I would make the, uh, I suppose you you could call it the rather optimistic point that things can change quite quickly. We've already heard some of the comments made by the uh, special forces guy who's operating in the Dnipro bridgehead. And I do think that's an area that the Ukrainians can and hopefully will exploit. There's a good chance, despite all the talk about cutting off arms and funding for Ukraine, that actually things will be sorted out, both in the US and the EU. More weapons will arrive, hopefully long-range attackums at some point. Certainly F-16s, they seem to be on the way. And that we might get a breakthrough that allows the use of main battle tanks, including Abrams, to be used and Ukraine to regain more of its territory, which, of course, in turn will strengthen its bargaining position. And the good news is that Viktor Orban notwithstanding, I think we can say that European support for Ukraine is pretty strong. And in the long run, it really comes down to a question of how you win a war like this. And I'll go back to the point that Phil O'Brien has made many times. It's economic might that is going to win this type of arm wrestle. And frankly, with the support, as long as it retains the support of at least Europe and possibly the US too, uh, Ukraine will be in a reasonably strong position. So don't despair yet, listeners. Well, economic might plus manpower, that's uh, that's an issue which is uh, raised actually by one of our listeners, uh, after, which we'll be discussing after the break. But just one more thing I wanted to raise in this half, Saul, is this row between the mayor of Kiev, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, and President Zelensky. I don't know if you saw this, uh, this interview he gave to Der Spiegel, uh, when he said that Ukraine is moving towards authoritarianism, uh, this was uh, you know, taken as a veiled attack on Zelensky. And he's even goes as far as to say, at some point, we will no longer be any different from Russia, where everything depends on the whim of one man. Now, this was an interview that went out on the 1st of December. Uh, now, Zelensky spokespeople haven't uh, responded to this, but it seems to be part of an ongoing row that you know, there's no love lost between the two of them. Uh, even before the war began, they were they were hardly best of mates. But it's part of a kind of bigger thing uh, that's going on there. And I think that's the broader breakdown in the political truce that essentially existed for much of the war. Now, 
you know, in the face of this existential threat from Russia, competitive politics was pretty much put on hold, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And people are beginning to ask about the origins and the early conduct of the war. There's a, apparently a criminal investigation going on into the failures in the defense of southern Ukraine. And there's more and more criticism of the what's seen as the centralization policies and the increasing authoritarianism of President Zelensky. And that might be one explanation for that rather baffling decision by the commander-in-chief, uh, Valery Zaluzhny, to give an interview to The Economist saying that the war was stalemated. This may be because Zaluzhny has political ambitions. There's recent polling that shows his ratings are currently way higher than Zelensky's. And if there's an election held tomorrow, uh, Zaluzhny would would win. I mean, what do you read into all this? Is this, um, I suppose you could say, Saul, it's a kind of encouraging sign that uh, there's a degree of sort of stability uh, in Ukraine that allows people now feel free to kind of indulge in, in conventional politics. I suppose that would be a very positive way of looking at it. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that is the way I look at it, actually, Patrick. I mean, it's very healthy for a, even a country fighting for its life for questions to be asked. You know, these uh, these sorts of questions cannot be asked in, in Russia. And uh, and frankly, uh, Klitschko, of course, has political aspirations of his own. He's looking at he's playing the long game here and he's looking at the at a possible challenge for the presidency after the war is over. And so he's kind of laying the groundwork a little bit here. But, I, you know, going back to my point, I think it's it's a good sign that these sorts of debates are, are happening. We we had a lot more uh, toing and froing in terms of politicking in Britain uh, during Churchill's time in power than people might realize. I think there was a point early in 1942 when there was a really, really strong chance that he might be toppled from power and someone else put in his place. I mean, certainly that was his belief. So the idea that a nation has to absolutely line up and uh, in support of its leader uh, without question, I think is, 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 you know, not a good sign for any regime. So I'm not saying it's brilliant that you've got these sort of comments. There is a bit of fracturing. And frankly, Patrick, it's unlikely would have heard this sort of comment from Klitschko if the counteroffensive in the summer had been more successful. So there is an indication that, you know, there's a bit of war weariness going on. But I also think, as I say, that Klitschko is looking ahead to the future. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, that's the way I take it. But uh, you're absolutely right about the Britain in World War II. I mean, I think many people would be surprised to hear that uh, Churchill actually faced a vote of no confidence, didn't he, in 1942, which, of course, he won. But uh, I think that's a sign of a healthy democracy. So I think that's the right way to interpret it. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. 
Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Welcome back. Well, the first question this week is from Dave Aitchison. He's in Portsmouth in Britain. Uh, and he says, I have a question about the war in Ukraine that I'm hoping you might be able to address. And that's the question of whether a long war is won by numbers or economic power. He writes, which is the more important factor here between the size of an army in terms of the number of people and the size of the industry or economy supporting it? I ask because it seems like who has the advantage differs for each type of size. If NATO, even without the US, continues to support Ukraine, then the relative economic strength industrial capacity clearly favours Ukraine over Russia. But because NATO members are never going to send actual troops to help, the relative military manpower clearly favours Russia over Ukraine. So if the war is ultimately going to be won by the bigger side, then who wins? The bigger army backed by a smaller economy or the smaller army backed by a bigger economy? Patrick, what's your feeling about that? Well, that sounds like a very good uh, sort of staff college question, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> that's a good one, Dave. Thanks for that. Well, um, I would, well, it sort of depends actually on, on the sort of war you're fighting, really, doesn't it? Now, this one is a strange war. It's, it's a hybrid. Uh, you've got all the latest in military technology on the battlefield, but nonetheless, it does come down to some pretty old fashioned, uh, you know, slogging tactics in which manpower plays a huge part, as the Ukrainian commander, uh, Valery Zaluzhny, uh, admitted in that interview that we were talking about earlier. And he said that essentially they've reached stalemate, and unless there's some technological breakthrough, um, then you know there's a, a big a looming risk of stasis paralysis setting in. He, what he actually said was the biggest risk of an attrench, attritional trench war is that it can drag on for years and wear down the Ukrainian state. Uh, we need to look for this solution, i.e. The, the breakthrough, and to use it for a speedy victory, because sooner or later, we're going to find that we simply don't have enough people to fight. Well, you know, in the same interview, he went on to say that Russia's got a different attitude towards casualties than, uh, than Ukraine does. Putin clearly doesn't care how many Russian lives he squanders. And it seems that the population, so far at least, are prepared to go along with the losses. Now, Ukraine's different. They're losing the best and the brightest on the battlefield, and it hurts them. But historically speaking, to answer the question, I suppose the surest way of guaranteeing victory is to have both uh, huge economic strength backing up endless manpower, um, which is what you saw in the Second World War, when the powerhouse of the US economy, with its enormous production capacity, was combined with the bottomless supply of Red Army soldiers, whereas Germany, on the other hand, once it failed in its initial objective to annex the resources of the East, had a finite economy and a finite supply of men. So 
Germany lost. Now, a really uh, interesting one from Paul Westwood. He asks, why don't countries with frozen conflicts, in particular Georgia and Moldova, this is frozen conflicts essentially with Russia, take the opportunity presented by the war in Ukraine and attempt, and attempt to reclaim South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and Transnistria, thus putting further pressure on Russia. There can't be many Russians left in these areas, and Russia did nothing when Azerbaijan took control of Karabakh, even though a few Russian peacekeepers were killed in the, in the process. Why do you think this is, Saul? Have you, have you got an answer to that? I think quite rightly, they're playing the long game. And it's interesting, Paul goes on to say, you know, his own depressing answer in the case of Georgia, which is, of course, at lost South Ossetia and Abkhazia. I think that was in 2008, wasn't it, Patrick? And Paul's uh, explanation for this is that the Georgian dream government is basically choosing appeasement in the probably vain hope of avoiding a future invasion. Now, Georgia is interesting because its its population, uh, so we gather, is very anti-Russian, but its government is effectively, you know, in Russia's control. But even if it wasn't, and you could certainly say in Moldova that's been the case, um, I think they're looking in the in the long term. So yes, while the Ukrainian conflict is going on, there is an opportunity. But of course, there's also a possibility that there's going to be trouble afoot, particularly for Georgia, given its geographical position after the war, when Russia is able to mass its forces and take revenge as it would see it. So I think they're probably right to be cautious at this stage and to see what happens at the end of the Ukraine war rather than taking advantage while it's happening. Okay, we've got a question from Australia, South Australia from Nigel Rains. I was wondering what your thoughts are regarding a possible Russian involvement with Hamas and the October 7th attack. On paper, it seems to me to hold some merit as a conspiracy theory. The American support of Ukraine has no doubt impacted on the Russian operations there, and there are limits to how much either side can sustain. In a war of attrition, Russia can't wait to see if a Republican candidate is elected in the US and hope there is a reversal or reduction in in support. In other words, they had everything to gain from the October 7th attack. And the question from Nigel is, could they have, have actually been involved in terms of supplying munitions to Hamas? Patrick, any insight into that? Well, I'm just amused by this phrase, some merit as a conspiracy theory. Do conspiracy theories ever have, have any merit? I suppose they do, actually. They make you think a bit. They make you kind of... Uh, examine a, a question in a bit more depth than you might otherwise do if you've got some sort of crazy interpretation coming at you. But uh, yeah, anyway, thanks, Nigel. This is certainly a suggestion, conspiracy theory or not, that uh, intelligence agencies have been probing. A, a friend of mine who's connected in that world asked me this about whether I knew anything about this actually not long ago. Um, and I suppose the reason for that is because the uh, benefits for Russia are obvious and immediate. So I think October the 7th was probably the happiest day of Putin's year. And the world's attention immediately switched away from Ukraine. And I think in the normal way of things, it's, it's not likely to refocus on it with the same intensity when it does sort of stray back again. And uh, as we were saying, American diplomatic and military energies now diverted onto two fronts and um, you know, it's created a struggle over priorities in America itself, with all the kind of consequences uh, that we've just been talking about for Ukraine. But to answer the question, um, I don't think Russia or the FSB was directly involved. Uh, someone even suggested to me that Wagner might have had something to do with it. I think that's extremely unlikely. But from what I understand, the, the Kremlin's, you know, pretty well publicized links with Hamas 
are fairly routine. They're just making sure that Russia keeps its options open, keeps uh, its lines open with regional players, and you know, just to have a kind of kind of some skin in the game, if you like, rather than I wouldn't take this as evidence. They actually want to actively meddle in the Israel-Palestine conf- conflict, and, and I don't believe that they Russia had or Moscow had much to do uh, with what happened on October the seventh. Now, Lena Rindvig uh, wanted to share a link with us uh, on the subject of uh, Azov. This was on a recent podcast when we were talking about the Azov. Uh, well, at various times, they've been a battalion, a regiment, uh, etc. What are they now? Are they a brigade now, Saul? Anyway, brigade, yeah. Uh, they're a brigade now. And, of course, you know, th- there have been many accusations that this is basically a sort of neo-fascist, neo-Nazi uh, culture uh, that informs the unit and um, recently, uh, Lena tells us, Azov launched a website uh, only a couple of weeks ago, which tries to kind of um, push back from that perspective and say that, you know, whatever they once were, uh, they've actually undergone significant cultural changes. And uh, Lena wanted to share that with us. You've actually had a look at this, haven't you, Saul? Yeah, I mean, if you tap in Azov contra fake myths about Azov, you'll, you'll, you'll come across this. And it is quite interesting because, I mean, what it's saying, and, you know, I suppose it would say this, but what it's saying is that Azov's been the, you know, the victim, really, of a deliberate Russian attempt to uh, blacken its reputation, partly because it is so effective. That is, uh, Azov was created in 2014 in a response to the military invasion of eastern Ukraine uh, by Russian forces. And the volunteer unit accepted into its ranks, so this piece insists, anyone who was willing and able to defend Ukrainians of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And we know how effectively they fought, of course, in Mariupol, which is why a number of Azov fighters were captured. And there are also, we should add, as I discovered in my interview last week, with the, you know, the very courageous Russian journalist, Patrick, a lot of these Azov guys have actually been sentenced uh, to life imprisonment in, in Russia almost certainly after being tortured and forced to confess the crimes they didn't commit. Now, the article goes on to say, due to the high motivation and professional training of Azov fighters, the unit became the main target of Russian propaganda. Russian special services build a myth about Azov's so-called neo-Nazism inside the Russian Federation and around the world. They spread false information, manipulated facts, and bribed journalists to publish made-to-order articles. In complex, these actions have led to consequential results and all the myths that we've, we've been talking about. Now, of course, we had the the other side of the coin when when we were sent photographs that were alleged to have been uh, indications that Azov fighters were actually, you know, scrawling what effectively are swastikas. But so sophisticated is this kind of Russian propaganda, Patrick, that it's possible that even Western journalists have been duped into believing this sort of stuff. So it is, you know, I think it's worth putting on the record some of the counters to the claims that Russia are making about Azov. Yeah, I'd hate to think that we were duped by those, those <laughs> photographs that we were talking about the other day. Anyway, they could have been sent by, you know, Russians. I mean, who knows, for goodness sake, it, it wouldn't be that difficult. Yeah, it was a pretty sophisticated operation if that was the case. Now, I'm just going to answer one here from Jesper Christensen, who uh, says, being a former army officer in the Danish army, I really appreciate your thorough and almost neutral discussions, interviews and reporting. Well, thanks, Jesper. One thing that's puzzled me, he says, is the rare, very rare examples of barbed wire hindrances on the battlefield, that is. He says, do you know why? Well, I've had a little bit of a look at this, but it is a bit of a mystery, I have to say. I mean, one explanation that's been put forward is that until recently, anyway, this was 
still a war of movement and uh, the territorial gains and losses were not large, at least since the big Ukrainian advances of more than a year ago now. But so from a Ukrainian perspective, you don't really want to be hemming yourself in with defensive obstacles that are then going to, you're going to have to negotiate when you when you push forward again. So that's that sort of, you know, one explanation from the U- Ukrainian side. From the Russian point of view, uh, it's a bit more puzzling. Um, by and large, they've mostly been on the defensive, uh, despite these... Um, attacks that they've been launching recently. So it would make more sense for them to employ barbed wire or razor wire. However, the you know, going into battle in on the front, I mean, both sides basically go up in APCs and then dismount to fight at close quarters. So if you put barbed wire out, the APCs would just roll over them. So it's not going to be much of a much of a barrier. And anyway, um you know, the Russian way is to lay minefields left, right, and center, which they've done with wild abandon everywhere. So I suppose the answer is that all round uh, the cost-benefit analysis on both sides would be that um, barbed wire is more trouble than it's worth. Have you got any thoughts on that, Saul? Yes. Well, on the subject of mines, Patrick, we've got another question from Alexei from Quebec. And he says, on the recent incident of Russian General Zavadsky being blown up by supposed uh, Russian mining, Kherson, my understanding is that a lack of transparency in in the Russian command on the location of these minefields is to blame. So, I mean, we've got an incident here where quite a senior Russian officer was blown up by one of his own mines. So they're so (laughs) they're so promiscuous in terms of the strewing of these of these minefields that it's probably almost impossible to know exactly where all of them were. Hence the consequence of, of this character dying. Now, moving on, we've got a question from John Malevich from Montreal, Canada, and he's a former armor officer, so a former tank officer, presumably in the Canadian Army. And he says, I find myself perplexed at the foot dragging from NATO countries with regard to giving kit to assist Ukraine with the equipment that it needs to win against Russia. I would like to think that there was a plan behind it, but sadly, I think it's just foot dragging because Europe and the US just don't realize how dangerous Russia really is. He goes on to say, what are the advantages of supplying Ukraine with kit? Well, first, Russia is dangerous. Unless it's stopped, it will continue to destabilize Europe. Certainly, that's the argument Zelensky is making. Secondly, for less than 1% to 5% of the U.S. defense budget, the Ukrainians have destroyed half of the Russian army. And third, this leads on to my last point. Giving equipment and ammunition to the Ukrainians is cheaper than decommissioning it and disposing of it ourselves. And this is the really interesting point he makes. I had no idea that that was the case. Ammunition, he goes on to say, has a shelf life, and it is easier to just give it to the Ukrainians to dispose of rather than disposing of it ourselves. Finally, our kit is rapidly becoming obsolete and will not be fit for purpose for the next war. And he goes on to make the you know comparison of the Italians in the 1930s and how by the Second World War, their kit was totally out of date, which uh, of course is true. I think the issue on ammunition, though, uh, I should say, John, is there simply aren't enough shells. The Western governments or Western militaries have already donated an awful lot of shells. And I suppose the real question is why hasn't shell uh, production been ramped up rather than handing over obsolete kit. Question from Matt in the UK. I've always wondered whether Ukraine could take steps to actively promote desertions and defections from the Russian army. We all know that morale is very low amongst Russian troops and that there must be a good number who are disaffected with both the war and the Putin regime. So he goes up to make the suggestion, why why can't they be made a pretty decent offer they can't refuse? And that would be that they, if they do desert and when the war's over, they can ultimately live in a much freer society 
in Ukraine. I mean, it sounds very sensible, doesn't it, Patrick? Can you see obvious pitfalls to that working? Well, they're already doing this, as we've pointed out, I think, in in past podcasts, actively encouraging desertions among the Russian ranks, that is. And uh, someone put a number on it, actually, only the other day. Uh, there was a conference, military conference in the States, the U.S. Army's Special Operations Commander called Jonathan Braga told the gathering that uh, he reckoned that these tactics had driven 17,000, 17,000 Russian soldiers off the battlefield. Now, they do this uh, by uh, basically social media messaging, persuading uh, Russians that uh, there is, if they desert, if they come over, they're going to be treated well without actually any price being asked of them. There's no suggestion they're going to be then sort of given a gun and told to go back to the front and fight their former comrades. It's all quite sophisticated stuff. So there's even examples of uh, them paying people actually to come over. I think there was a helicopter pilot that came over and got a big chunk of money as a consequence. So, you know, financial inducements, uh, they've got interviews that they kind of put out on Russian social media with, with Russian prisoners saying how well they're being treated. There's a hotline that you can call if you, if you want to come over. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's all pretty sophisticated stuff. Now, has it actually led to any dramatic weaknesses on, on the Russian side? The answer is it's sort of disruptive uh, rather than having sort of real kind of consequences on the battlefield that you can point to. So, so far, no mass desertions. Um, but, you know, who knows? As the winter wears on, ever optimistic, uh, we may we can uh, cling to the hope that one day there will actually be like an you know, entire large-scale unit, a, a regiment or a battalion or something. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Do join us next week when we'll be giving all the latest news from Gaza and Ukraine, of course. And also, I urge you to look out for our special Christmas podcast when we'll be recommending the year's best books. And Roger will be returning for a special guest appearance on that pod. Goodbye. Goodbye.